Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli with Redefining Society podcast on ITSP Magazine. And uh, I got to say that uh, lately I get more interesting topic suggestion and guests than what I can actually handle. I'm, I'm going to have to start <laughs> giving it to some other host on ITSP Magazine. But I, I wanted to keep this one for, for myself because it's right at the core of what I like to talk about, which is artificial intelligence, technology, and humanity. And to talk about this from what I think is going to be a very interesting angle, um, because of the background and the story we're going to hear is uh, Chuck Rinker here, and uh, it's with us. And uh, stay tuned, because I think it's going to be interesting. Chuck, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. So... Um, I'm not going to go too much into what we already talked before start recording because I, I want that to be your, your leading to the conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your unique story into, into technology, how, how you got into that. Wonderful. And I appreciate it. I think it's going to be intriguing today. I'm really excited about the, having this um, house society and technology merge from your perspective. So I think I'll learn as much from you, if not more from you today, than you'll probably learn from me. Um, but the background on, on how we got here is, um, I actually grew up a cattle farmer up in Virginia, up in the mountains, uh, you know, urban, small town, uh, good old, you know, American working class, uh, a family, grew up with some pretty strong ethics, very strong uh, parents that were really supportive. And they started pushing me to um, play on some of my math aptitude and, and to get me from being a cattle farmer to something that they thought would be uh, more conducive with the type of interest and intrigue I showed up. So we were lucky enough to be outside of DC. So where this really comes to is as I got more and more into um, the DC community, of course, um, everything from black ops military uh, to growing up in the early, the early days of one gaming was just becoming 
commonplace. People don't realize back in the days, you know, we represented football players by red blips on the screen, not by the photorealistic <laughs> renderings and all we got today. But that really plays right into the heart of what we're talking about when we say, what's it mean to be human? What's it mean to have personality? Is even back in those days, when I was playing um, the LED football games, you know, to me, I could see a quarterback in my head. I could see the blockers out front. And we were playing these games just as engrossed, just as intrigued and infatuated as if you had, you know, your uh, full VR headset on your head. So your brain's very powerful. Your brain, as you know, has an imagination that people don't give it credit for. And so as we moved in more and more into um, some of the new technologies of um, um, when I first started, I was doing ticker tape for, for those old school guys. You'll see me on camera. I'm not a young spring chicken anymore. Um, you know, we were punching holes in paper tapes to communicate data to the computer. Then we had the teletypes, which were basically typewriters um, with no screens. Then we had screens. Then we had color screens from green screens. Then we got more and more. So there was this evolution all the way through the mouse and now voice first. And there's an evolution in my mind to now we're approaching that ability to recreate human personality and how we handle that from an ethical standpoint, from a practical standpoint and technology standpoint, of course, is, is as you say in your podcast, it's not something that's 10 years away. That evolution I've talked about from cattle farmer to human AI is not something we're waiting for 10 years. We've been delivering practical applications. People are using this. This is part of our daily life. And I really kind of feel like it's time to open up the conversation and make sure that we're using it for the, uh, we'll say right purposes, but let's, let's call it for, for, for the benefit of all. I, uh, I welcome that as that's kind of like my mantra. I keep saying this all, all the time. Now, I, I love actually a couple of things that you said because you know I'm I'm not in my twenties uh, either and uh, and I consider myself really lucky actually to grow up with the analog technology and then being right there for the transformation in digital and I go back to the radio I go back to you know TV and I go back to the earlier computer where you know, we were using it. You mentioned like, yeah, my first uh, video game, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a ball bouncing between two little bar, right? <laughs> Tennis, ping pong or pong or whatever it was called. And and to see where we are now, it's it blows my mind. I mean, we're talking about things that we can actually chat uh, GPT and, and have an, mm -hmm. an artificial intelligence that is doing... I don't think it's that intelligent. I think it's more of a marketing uh, push on, on that. But we're, we're getting there. There's definitely machine learning, right? I think you, you would agree with that. But you said something, and, and that is using our imagination, right? I mean, it's like you read a book, and you, many people say it was better than the movie because you made it the way you wanted mm -hmm. it to be. So it, I, I think you said that. I don't know if I'm mis interpreting that but let's no. elaborate that a little bit more so what it means to be human maybe and and what it means that yeah. the imagination in all this picture yeah yeah as a human i'll start there and um I'm like i said i don't have the uh formal uh background you have in some of this discipline this is where this is where the fun begins marco um because to me when, when i've engaged 
um, millions of people in football games and gaming. Uh, like I said, I did the Madden NCAA football franchise prior to starting this company. And now we're moving this towards some of those benefits we talked about. How do we use these uh, uh, digital personalities for clinical trials? But in order to get that, when we say we need to bring the hum human element, and I'm not dissing any of my competition, but um, a lot of people focus on digital humans. That's a term gardeners using all over the place. It's part of the hype cycle. A lot of the people in this space are saying, oh, we're creating digital humans, we're creating digital humans. And it leads to something we call the uncanny valley, um, which is kind of that sense that us humans are so engrossed with um, what it means to be human. And, um, and we'll get to answering your definition directly here in about 30 seconds. But we've gotten so engrossed with this concept of what it means to be human, and we're trying to replicate humans and think that that's how we, that's how we make something that's more human. And that's entirely, entirely in my mind, the wrong approach. And I, I, I play homage to the, the, the great Walt Disney and say he was the original creator of virtual reality, <laughs> not, 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 not Facebook or who, you know, the whole reason he created the whole Disney empire and Disney world, the theme parks and the videos was when you talk to a, um, he, he led you to believe that a skunk had a personality and that if it died, you cried over a, 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 a deer or a skunk or an animal or an inanimate object. And you had true emotion and feeling. You had a human bond. You had a human connection with those people, um, with those personalities, let's say. So when I think of what is human and why our flag, our mantra is digital personalities for the workplace, is I want to know what makes Chuck Brinko, what makes Marco Marco. It's not everything about your beard and you wearing glasses. It's your demeanor. It's how you react to something. It's the culmination of your life experiences that cause you to not only, to be blunt, look at the aesthetics you might hold, what your values are, how you respond to certain situations, how you respond to stimulus around you. And at the end of the day, reality is the eight inches between your ears is your reality. And so that is what, it means to be human is what is your view of the world? Everything from values, demeanors, personalities, vocabularies, languages, aesthetics, cosmetics, uh, the phys physiology, the physicality of your being is what it is human. And we spend so much time trying to create digital humans that they become creepy. They become this uncanny value valley. And we lack the, we lack the stripping that away and creating something that we're comfortable communicating with, something that we will trust, like these Disney characters I talk about, something that can express empathy and emotion, something you can create an emotional bond with and that gets you to um, um, react in how um, um, we would as humans, not just simply trying to create somebody down to the hair follicle and then using it for the wrong piece. So you alluded to, so that's my definition of what it means to be human. So when you alluded to chat GPT and um, the machine learning piece, we use a lot of that and not chat GPT, but machine learning, but we actually take, I'll call it more of Microsoft's definition of active learning. We're not trying to teach these things to be their own sentient beings and act in a truly autonomous way. We're using the AI, we're using speech to text, natural language parts, parsing, all these IoT technologies um, that we talk about, language understanding, um, text to, um, uh, the ability to speak 148 languages. We've developed 
our own sign language EP so we can communicate with the deaf community. We have a couple of members on our team from the deaf community. And we built all these tools, not to automate humanity, but to build a communication pipeline that you and I are comfortable with. Two billion years ago, if I wanted something, I'd point to, you know, some food on a tree and grunt and go, and, you know, that was communicating. I know that's a little goofy, a little geeky, but, but, but that's no, how you it's, communicate. It's, it's so, true. <laughs> yeah. So we're going, why are we trying to, we, we, humans have spent 2 billion years learning how you and I will form a bond, the gestures I can make now, the eye movements I can make. And that's where you will, you're either going to learn to trust me or not trust me. I'm going to be empathetic to your thoughts or not. And that's the human bond. And that's what we're trying to embrace with personas, not let's replace humans. So I, I love a lot of things you said. And, and, and the reference to Disney, I'm a big fan of Disney. I'm a big fan of storytelling. So how can you not look at what is done? And, and then you mentioned a few things that I, I agree with you. Again, it's recreating humanity. When you, when you play creator, it, it's something that always scares me. Every bad sci-fi movie or book end up bad because of that, right? <laughs> so it goes out of control, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's good in storytelling. It works in sci-fi. I don't want it to work in our society. So I like the approach, and I always say that, you know, AI, advanced technology is, for me, is a tool to enhance maybe our communication and ourself. It's a robotic arms. It's a small robot that goes into a cave and, and finds something so the body, nobody risks their life and they are, you know, good in the environment, whatever it is, but they're tools. And I, I think that that's also part of your message, meaning why are we trying to recreate or pretend because we're far from recreating that? And I hope we never get there. So what's your approach to, to that? Not only because of what you do, and I want to get a little bit more into these personas that you're, that you're creating mm -hmm. and, and what their utility and approach in approaching real life sure. uh, scenarios are. But this vision about distinguishing reality from uh, fantasy, even if a character is a fantastic character, like a, a deer or a talking mouse mm -hmm. or whatever it is, or a video game, I think it's important that we know that we are not interacting with yes. a reality. What's your take yeah. on that? Yeah, um, well, I'm going to back up to one word you said that's key. Um, you, you use the word tools over and over. This is a tool. This is a tool. And, and I want to highlight that because I, I can't agree with you more, Marco. I, I think people view, um, they've seen too many episodes of, you know, iRobot um, um, and the uh, Terminator and all these artificial intelligence that you come back and find that humanity is inferior. We're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Uh, the reality is, is AI, even as sophisticated as it appears right now, is not really a full general purpose AI. We build tools that solve specific problems, very unique, very identifiable, very quantifiable specific problems. And um, we're doing the same thing. We're not trying to recreate a general human AI. We're trying to create a tool. I'm going to use your word again, uh, again or not against you, for you, to support you, a tool that will help take some of the repetitive mundane elements that we as humans are required to utilize. And we'll get into some of these use cases like um, um, 
Let's take healthcare. We believe strongly in healthcare. Our healthcare system needs a lot of help. We've got labor shortages. There's, um, you know, three, three um, open positions for every single resume out there in submission. And, and how do we improve our healthcare system? And, you know, um, you take these digital personalities and how do we remove some of the burden on the HCPs, the healthcare professionals, so that we can free up what you and I do as humans. We're creative, we're innovators, we can think, we can, we can create from the ground up. We can not only solve problems, but AI is designed typically from the ground up with a set of rules, whether that's rules is automatically generated based on GPT, but you know, they still have to populate the data and it creates its own algorithms. But at the end of the day, it's still a sophisticated algorithm. What we're trying to do at Personas is to play onto what you said about tools. We're trying to supply a tool to society that allows you to scale the human experience, not replace the human experience, but to scale that human experience so that all this massive, wonderful technology that's running at a rapid pace right now is something that we can use in a practical sense that we can communicate with, we can understand with. And so um, um, society will be able to get the benefit of this scaled human experience without everybody being AI data scientists. And, and, and that's an easier problem than people think, actually, I, I do. And, and I'm not saying my guys are the smartest on the planet, but, you know, they're pretty dang close. Um, and, and we focus on that scaling piece. And it's, um, it'd be interesting to, um, to get your take on what you've seen on use cases for this type of AI before I continue my ramble about how we've been successful in scaling that human experience in, in, in today's world. Um, um, where do you see AI and that human learning piece going? Well, I, I go back to, to the tool. You know, I mean, I, I, I keep saying, you know, let's let's do it. Let's do it. I believe it's bringing so many advantages to our society. I mean, you talk to the healthcare system. I and mean, when, when I hear people just bashing AI because they don't want it, I'm like, you understand that we are already using this and it's already making our life a lot better, even if you don't know. I mean, you're landing safely on a plane and flying because of that. You Yes. Healthcare, you know, they can detect. I mean, it's it's the speed and the accuracy that they do this. But, but then we go to the sentient and to the creative mind, and I don't feel like they're gonna take our place. It's like I, everybody's talking about Chat GPT now, and and I'm like, well, people are like, well, the the writers are gonna lose their job, and I'm thinking like the bad writer probably. The bad writers probably will because they're going to use it and don't change a thing or even write lyrics for songs or music. I mean, there is the machine learning that create music now. But if you're good, it, I think you're OK. I think it's even beyond that. I think it's going to I think it's going to improve the productivity. Take um, yes. two, two, two interesting use cases I'll, uh, I'll allude to. At one point in time, we were worried that, you know, computers were going to take a, you know, a, a typist jobs away from them. But now it's an understood tool that improves the overall productivity of society. The old one I like to go because it's a little more fun to, to bring out is back when the stethoscope was, stethoscope was first invented in healthcare. All the doctors thought it was a threat. You can't replace the human ear. The stethoscope's not as sensitive. You're, you're, you're going to destroy healthcare as we know it because the stethoscope can't be used 
like a human ear and you're going, well, wait, 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 that's just a tool to improve mm -hmm. your hearing perception. And now stethoscopes, just standard practice. So if you fast forward. You have one right on your, you know. Exactly, exactly. So to bring your point about we're not replacing humans, here's a, here's a real practical example that we've done. We've worked with um, RTI Institute with um, clinical trial. Clinical trial and outcomes, obviously, as we know, clinical trials, I shouldn't say obviously, you know, I, I apologize. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not sure exactly who your audience is, but let's just take a 30 second review of what a clinical trial does. A clinical trial runs a series of tests, runs a series of experiments, and you're trying to specifically improve the health and wellness of the human population. Now, in order to get that in there, to get these trials done, they're incredibly time consuming, incredibly expensive, takes a tremendous amount of labor, tremendous amount of dedication, a tremendous amount of education and background. But if we could just move a needle a little bit, there's so much in our healthcare system right now that is um, inefficient, let's be honest, and that is not as effective as it could be. So we've been able to take our characters and say, well, instead of having people try to track down a certain demographic that gets into a population of a clinical trial so that we can study this underserved community or this minority community, or let's say they're uh, in a, in a um, um, uh, eco-social, uh, uh, economic or social uh, underserved community or disadvantaged community, they're very much like three to 10 times less likely to participate in a clinical trial. So if you wanna reach those communities and you wanna speed up the clinical trial process, improve outcomes so that we can improve healthcare for those communities, especially that are, you know, um, multiple lingual, multilingual, different genders, different races. Um, um, we mentioned the deaf community. We're now able to use our digital personas or digital personalities to now go out and reach out to those individual patients and to give them a empathetic, trustworthy ear to talk to, to respond to, to engage with and help that community form that trust and um, feel comfortable participating in these clinical trials. So that is something that's not taking anybody's job away from them. It's just using the power of this human engagement component you referred to, this you know uh, um, um, scalable human element and being able to apply it to something that's very real, very practical, and has a positive impact. That engagement concept we talk about, you're more likely to engage as a gamer, as a, um, you mentioned your, your, your gaming background, my gaming background, um, how you react to some of these movie characters and all. So I only tell people, imagine if we could get people as comfortable, trustworthy, and I'm gonna use the word addicted, and as addicted to their own health and well-being and their own patient advocacy on their healthcare journey that we could with this entertainment, you know, you're in the middle of LA, you're right in the heart of electronic entertainment and CGI production. I'm an XEA gamer and we know people go to movies, people go to Hollywood, people can play games. These are huge and people are quite bluntly almost addicted to them. So why can't we do that with healthcare? Why can't we do that with customer service? Why can't we do that with things that are more beneficial than the entertainment value alone? So I had some conversation in the past um, with people in the healthcare industry, actually the former CEO of, uh, of a large um, permanente group, for example. And, and, and we were talking about how 
kind of what you said about the stethoscope, how the actual medical community, they are somehow refusing the innovation because they think they take their status yep. um, away from them. It's like you, you can't trust the stethoscope, which now is the AI or machine learning. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think the truth is in the middle, meaning we need to understand that we're going to need both. But yeah. apart from the medical community, do you have some case studies of how the user perceive these changes? So I'm going to a healthcare facility mm -hmm. instead of talking to the person that, that welcomed me there, which mm -hmm. made me moody and sometimes nice, sometimes not. I go to like a screen, right? And tell me if I'm understanding well, and I, I, I can get the appointment going or I can mm -hmm. do other things. How are people responding to this? That's a great, great, great question. And one that I'm um, quite honestly, we're, we're, we've been um, at this since 2013. I consider ourselves one of the probably top three to five leaders in the space. And we're unique in how we take our approach and it's directly related to what you just asked. Um, because early on, quite honestly, we got a lot of the creepy factor. We got a lot of one of my biggest pieces and I'll admit the faults in the, 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 the positives and the negatives, as we say, the good, bad, the ugly of what we've learned over the last 10 years. Um, and one of those was the reluctance and the attempts of trying to get into recreating these humans and trying to be so in touch and in tune with what we believe people we want to communicate with and how realistic that character should be. We did probably defend ourselves on a, on a monthly basis of, oh, you're just trying to take jobs. You're just trying to do that. But when we shifted gears a little and, and, and we changed our tagline to the digital personalities and focused on the personality of a human, what, what does it mean to be human, to your point? And, and when we found out it was less about uh, the human replication, um, as a matter of fact, just a little bit of a side tangent, because I think it was interesting. You you expressed a passion for Disney like I did. I do have to ask you in your second title of your opening notes, you say it's a small world comma after all. And it's gotten even smaller <laughs> technology. Is that is that a direct reference? I, th I think it came from that. I mean, it's McLuhan, it's Marshall McLuhan in the in the, you know, the media, the, the global village. But I think, yep. yeah, it's a small world after all. It's definitely, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely from Disney. Yes. <laughs> so the, the reason I bring that up is because um, we were at, we were actually talking with Disney, and I was lucky enough to meet with one of the um, SVPs of Imagineering, a gentleman named John Snotty, who I think just recently retired. But he he had run a game company prior to joining Disney, and he was one of these guys that put faces on digital avatars inside of video games. I don't know his full background. I apologize. I don't know him too much. But he saw the personas. At the time, we were delivering them on holographic displays, making them a wow factor, a lot in the trade show. It was really like the attractor. What, what can we do? We did a, to, to your LA background, we, we did one of the back, uh, back parties for Sony Pictures where they would be greeted by this hologram and talk about you know um, um, some of the information on the film that they had produced and stuff like that. So, the, so they can act as those information readers. But but John, Mr. Uh, is the one that said, hey, get, come out, back up, guy. You're, you're, you're a little too close to human. You're, you're creeping people out. And coming from Disney, he, he alluded to that directly. So over the years, as we've um, 
dumb their characters down, and I shouldn't use that word. Let's just call them, I call them making them more approachable. But we've taken them away from that photorealistic piece. The reception of them has gone from, ooh, now every time I'm turning around and defending myself on LinkedIn about why I'm not really trying to replace humans, people are starting to look at the engagement side of it, and they're really starting to be a little more trusty, a little more empathetic. There's even some clinical trials, if you have any patrons that are interested um, in the psychology of these avatars and why the Disney-esque and why the more uh, less photorealistic characters we call them, and, and some of the ones we merge on the natural, and, and I'll get to that in a second, become um, more approachable, more empathetic. In the gaming space, we used to use the term suspension of disbelief, meaning you want to put somebody into a world, you want to put someone into an environment that there's nothing that's quote unquote out of place. When something's out of place, it takes you out of that reality or it seems supernatural. The example I use to people is some of these horror movies you'll watch. And if you're, if, if, you know, if you watch them, you know, a body part that turns a little farther than it's put or the exorcism when the head turns past the uh -huh. natural, yep. anything that's just slightly off becomes creepy. Yep. And we're incredibly tuned to our conversation before the interview. You know, we, we've been spending 2 billion years uh, evol evolving the human form and we've become intensely keen on what it means to look human and act human. And if you violate that for something that's human, it creeps you out. Disney gets away with it. We get away yeah. with it. Well, I, I had no idea we were going <laughs> to go in this direction. And I, I love it because I want to stay there for the time and reminding. Uh, so you talk about suspension of disbeliefs. And, you know, I was actually reading about how you create this uh, this this moment of fear or panic and, and this is exactly that if you yeah. break a bone like in stranger things yeah the exactly. opposite right and that's like whoa or if somebody is missing the step and he's he walks the, the monster the creature walks mm -hmm. like a spider instead of like a human or you move on the side i, I that's incredible yes. the things that you can do so apart from that being fun and intelligent in terms of understanding the human nature and how we respond to this. That was exactly what I want to go deeper into is this revelation uh, that maybe make everything so anthropomorphic, so human, is what creeps, up, creeps us out. Yes. Because we're huh. used to see, a, you know, a mouse that the walk and sing and resolve things and the rabbits and we're okay with that because we're in another world and mm -hmm. i give you another example uh my wife she likes to watch all the the mystery and serial killer stuff and you know mm -hmm. and I, i'm not a big fan but i do love I watched the Adam uh, Wednesday, the Adams family oh, yeah. spin-off. <laughs> and there is some kind of weird stuff going on. Yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, you know, the nightmare before Christmas. But I get away because I'm in another world. I'm in a yes. fantasy world, and I know that I'm not dealing with real psycho. They're still psycho, yes. maybe, but you're in another place. So I say this because if I go to a booth, for example, to a kiosk, and the person that greets me is not too human, but it's, I don't know, maybe he's a rabbit <laughs> with mm -hmm. the kids. Like maybe he's in a kid office or maybe it is a very funny character. Why do we need to anthropomorphize everything? Why do the robot need to look human? Can it be a cube? There are cubes. Yep. So 
isn't that more the way to go so that we can distinguish this is not human, but is having a function in our society? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because um, there's, there's justification for both extremes. Hmm. And there's a really curious study. I, I, I'm happy to forward you after the uh, podcast, Marco, because you might find it intriguing with your uh, psychology background. Um, there's a clinical trial that shows when something is too inanimate, inanimate, you don't have a trust. You don't believe there's an intelligence behind it. You believe it's a machine. Mm-hmm. When you're too realistic, you creep people out and think that there's some supernatural going on. Reality is the avatars that have a human appearance and a slightly more what we'll call natural human appearance, but that are at the right level of realism, then become comfortable. They become trustworthy. They become what we call approachable. They become empath- They can express the empathy and emotion and expression to you. And as we go back to the old Disney, and, and it's funny you said Nightmare Before Christmas because I, I love that one as well. Um, but those characters could emote and you believe the emotion in them, even though they would stop motion. Um, so there's a reality in my mind that we find in the gaming space that you hit that point of not too inanimate, that you, it's not believable or not credible or doesn't appear to have an intelligence behind it are not too much. And that level is that fine balance that I'm going to call it for those audience members that are familiar with the term uh, Uncanny Valley. It's this concept, and I'll try to draw it in the air here. The more photorealistic something gets, the more believable it is. But once you hit a point and it's too accurate, physiologically speaking, it drops off like a cliff. And then once it goes through that valley, and comes up and I go, okay, wait, that is real. That is Marco. He is a real person. Mm-hmm. Now I, I get back on some of that trust band. So we're driving that line up to that cliff to make it as believable as possible without taking people over that cliff, after, at, over that uncanny valley journey. And that's a balance. And that only comes from experience. And the experience we've learned and where I believe my approach and personas' approach to this problem is, is, is excelling and learn from, quite honestly, is early military simulation, is gaming. We, we've been able to create um, a gaming society that makes believable characters, and it boils down to the one word, engagement. How do you engage people? Everything from that trust and all this engagement. Um, I'll give one more anecdotal story of why I'm 100% convinced we're taking the right approach to stop what you were just alluding to, which is that distrust, that creepiness, that, okay, you're just trying to replace humans. There's a, there's a definite distrust um, um, with certain approaches to digital humans. And that's the trade shows. We've done hundreds of trade shows. These are great information disseminated from what you were asking about practical application. Tell me about your product. Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? These things, as you know, can be trained with thousands of questions if you have to. Um, a lot of content, but it goes there. Um, but if you walked into this trade show, we were at a trade show in downtown Raleigh. And if I was to knock your iPhone off of your desk and crack the screen, the first thing I'm going to do is turn and go, oh, Marco, I'm so sorry. I broke your iPhone here. Let me pay for it. We had a gentleman that Daphne, we call her Daphne. Everybody creates their own personality. Our persona is called Daphne. Um, so Daphne was at the top of the escalator greeting people when they came up. Somebody wasn't paying attention and their kid was running off somewhere. 
and they bumped into Daphne. And Persona's Daphne started toddling a little bit. She didn't fall over, but she physically got bumped. And the guy turned to see that it was Daphne. And I was standing at the booth next to him answering questions. He said nothing to me. He turned to Daphne and went, oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. And then stabilized her and walked off. And that shows you he wasn't creeped out by her. He wasn't intimidated by her. He really subconsciously catching that glimpse of this human believed that there was somebody there that was bumped. And, and that, that the psychology of that's amazing to me. Yeah, it is. I, I have a creepy story, too, which is not that creepy. But I, I was in um, RSA conference, the security conference um, that is usually in San Francisco, but they have a Singapore one as well. And mm -hmm. uh, three years ago, right before the pandemic, uh, one of the keynote was the Sophia, the, the robot. Yes. Uh, it's creepy. Head. Well, they, got the, they do the whole <laughs> brain, they cut her skull and make it transparent. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's creepy. And, uh, creepy. and it's kind of like, okay, you're trying to be too real. And then you go on the side... And he's like, wait a minute, then there your head is cut off and I can see the inside, which get that creepy level. Bingo. It's like out. a RoboCop movie. Remember the old RoboCop movie? Yeah, yeah. But but I also to, to wrap this side of the conversation, I had uh, uh, as a guest on one of my shows, uh, one of the person that had been working and creating her personality, which she's actually a comedian. That works with a team because uh -huh. they they felt like bringing humor, for example, in the way that she interact. Uh, and I say she, but it's a eat Sophia, yeah, yeah. but you know, she, whatever it is. Referring to her as a she. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's that's what yeah. it looks like. You know, I, I refer to Siri as a, as a she, and yeah. I don't know why we're still there. But anyway, the point <laughs> the point is that there there is all these nuances of using that. Blurring that line where it's like, how human do you make it? Yeah. I mean, if you even make and make jokes, but then something doesn't appear human because it's not there yet. It's not passed in the Turing test yet. Yeah, You're really going to freak out. But if I'm talking with, again, I say a rabbit or a frog or whatever mm -hmm. it is, or something that is more of an alien, and it's, it's okay. I think it is more okay. It is, and I'm going to highlight a piece we did with um, CBHA, the Columbia Health Basin, just between Seattle and Spokane. And there's a population up there, and it's going to play directly into what you're saying because we talk about focusing on the personality that whatever target audience, whatever your demographic, whatever your target audience is, you want them to be comfortable and get the value and information and to be comfortable engaging with this technology. And then I'll get to an Infocom talk I said earlier. Um, about some of those stats behind you were asking about how people react. But in any sense, we were up there and this, there's this community that served and they speak a, um, uh, a not very popular language called Mixteca, which is a, a language that Siri doesn't speak. Microsoft Cortana doesn't speak. Alexa doesn't speak. But because of the tools of AI and such, and this population would come into these hospitals or this one hospital in particular and try to get served because they had health issues. They were you know, migratory or uh, uh, agricultural workers, and they needed support. And they weren't able to always get where they wanted to go efficiently. So they would always try to hire staff, translators, people from the community, and they would try to address this population. 
So they hired us and we worked with them over a collaborative period of a couple of years. And we taught Daphne, um, their version was, I think, I think they called her Olivia. So we created Olivia and Olivia worked on what we call um, our personality engine. So she was medical, so she had to have straight lace. So they helped work on how the scripts would go. We worked on teaching Olivia how to speak Mixteca and how to listen to Mixteca. And then we used our did personality engine to create a personality that had some of the same facial shape. And in that society, like most societies, for and I'm not trying to be sexist, but uh, um, um, there's a much better trust factor. About 75% of women and men trust female uh, personalities, which is why Sirius female, which is why our Daphne's tend to be female. So in any sense, we took a typical population. So we started building up this personality and that personality was deployed at this hospital that had, you know, everything from healthcare, optometrist, dental, and they could walk in the door, be greeted in a, in a very trusting fashion. And it wasn't stealing somebody's job. They couldn't have a receptionist sitting out there 24 seven trying to greet people. And they would greet them and give them information. Hey, if you're here for your eye appointment, you go over here. If you're here for this, you go upstairs. If you're here for imaging, here's how you get to the imaging lab. And they were able to do that. So then the hospital staff could focus on that high value patient care that we as humans are great at. And I think people need to start to your point, going all the way back to the tools. That's an example of what we were just talking about with the engagement and the creepy factor, but it's, it's practical. And that, that was done, you know, probably five or six years ago. This is not something that's 10 years out. It's something we need to really, to your point, embrace and understand and deploy in something that's, that's mutually beneficial for everyone. And I, I think that's possible. Yeah. No, I, I think you, you did a, a perfect connection back to where we started, which saved me a lot of time from going there. <laughs> uh, as we're at the 40 minutes of conversation, which I didn't even realize it was going so far because it's really fascinating. And like I said, it's, it's, it's really different from what I imagined, but I truly enjoyed it because we ended up talking about storytelling, character creation, Disney artificial intelligence, of course, and machine learning. And I think that I, I agree with you. I mean, in the long run, I, I just look at how now I can literally translate in 25 languages something yes. that, that I wrote, and that happened quickly. I was in, in Japan uh, two months ago talking about using characters, like cartoonish oh. characters, crazy over there. And, and how with my... With my phone, I could translate just by taking a, the camera on something in Japanese, which other than, you know, arigato and a few other things, I don't know. <laughs> but look at that. Is it stealing somebody's job? No. I don't have a personal translator with me, but it's definitely yeah. something that is a tool that I think it can be very, very useful when you need any information and you can't put Absolutely. it out there so huge leaps in in uh, leaps in the in what technology has become i think in the past 10 25 years and let's we don't even need to go that back but uh i enjoy it. i mean that was a, a good uh a good stroll in uh in some creative aspect of technology that that you walk us through so thank you chuck i appreciate Absolutely. it i do appreciate your time marco yeah, and as you mentioned, and as I close, if you have any resources, stuff that is ungated that you want to share, some books or publication and data, 
send it to me and I'll put it in the notes of uh, the podcast. And again, people can get in touch with you, learn more about you and maybe ask you some uh, some creepy question too. Who knows? Never <laughs> I, now. I, I, love, I love the debate. I, I, li I like the... Um... Uh, I, I like the naysayers as well as the, uh, as we call it, the Kool-Aid drinkers. It, it, it makes you think, makes you guess everything. And I, 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 I appreciate right. that. Absolutely. And as I always say, I want to thank everybody for listening. And if you have more questions now than when you started listening to this, we did a good job. I, I, I want people to question things. So Absolutely. thank you again, Chuck. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And stay tuned for Redefining Society podcast on ITSP Magazine. And I'll catch with you next time. Wonderful. Take care. Take care. Take care. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of if you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.